0: Hi, I'm Mark Lent, the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. With me today is Rory McCarthy of St. Anthony's Antony, College, Oxford. Uh, Rory, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you've written a number of articles for us about uh, Tunisia's Ennahda party, and I know you've been doing a lot of close research on the, on, on the movement. Um, could you just uh, tell us, broadly speaking, you know, how would you assess uh, ANETA's experience with the Tunisian transition, how how they've adapted to it, and how, it, how it's changed them, this this working within a democratic system?
1: Yes, I mean, I think it's been a, a real challenge um, and an opportunity for the movement. Uh, remember, this was a movement that was uh, heavily repressed for the 20 years before 2011, Uh, thousands of its members spent many years in jail in terrible conditions and lived lives of social exclusion when they came out of jail and a smaller number of leaders lived in exile abroad. Uh, After Ben Ali fell from power in January 2011, uh, the movement uh, returned to Tunisia and was for the first time in its history legally authorised. But then they faced the challenge of, of really what it meant to be an Islamist movement in this new democratic, pluralistic, political context. And I think that was a challenge strategically, but it was also a challenge intellectually. So strategically, uh, the the question for the movement was, how should they act? How should they uh, take part in elections? What should they do after having won those first elections in October 2011? And what marks out the uh, Chinese-Islamist experience as rather different from what we've seen in Egypt is that they chose a consensus path. They chose to go into coalition with secular parties and they chose eventually to dilute or to restrain some of their Islamizing ambitions. Um, And at the same time there has been an intellectual debate within the party that is still going on now that is uh, often ambiguous, it's awkward, it's inconclusive, uh, but there's a real effort to reimagine the project I think um, for this new uh, context, the Tunisia after two thousand and eleven. So, how
0: did Annette rebuild itself so quickly after being repressed and excluded for so long? Uh, within you know, a month after after Ben Ali fell, Annette seemed to have reestablished itself as a nationwide social movement and a powerful political party. How did it do it so quickly?
1: Yes, and it's pretty extraordinary given that we thought that Tunisia was a sort of oasis of secularism in the Arab world. How was it that so quickly after the fall of Ben Ali it was an Islamist party that emerged as by far the largest political force in the country. The work I've done, I've been doing uh, a lot of ethnographic field work in the city of Sousse among members of the Ennahda movement and what I've learned from my interviews is that uh, after the the prisoners came home from jail, so from the late 1990s onwards, even though they faced social exclusion, they were able to discreetly find ways to meet and to discuss their project. Uh, Even when they had been in jail, they were having discussions in their cells. In fact, ironically, they were freer to have those discussions in jail than they were perhaps when they came home from prison. And there was a real effort and a debate to... to to think about how they ought best to to face the the context that they were now in. And there were differences of opinion. Some, Some took a much more oppositional stance to the Ben Ali regime, made alliances with other political parties from the left, even from the communists, who are really their ideological rivals. Others, particularly among the exiles, the leaders who were in exile abroad, many of them were in the UK... ...decided that the best approach was to seek a rapprochement with the Ben Ali regime... ...and sought to, to reconfigure themselves as what they called a constructive opposition. So you had these, these two d- divergent trends in the movement... ...but what you did have was, the, was a real attempt to, to, to revive themselves... ...despite the enormous constraints they were under. So I think that when 2011 came along... ...they were able to re- reactivate those networks more quickly than we might have expected... What did happen, though, is that you see, especially looking at the local level, that the individuals who reactivated the networks were relatively old. They were in their late 40s and 50s. In other words, these had been men and women who were students in the 1980s, who had been very active in the Islamist student movement. And in a sense, there's a missing generation. So young people... Um, who came of age in the 90s and the 2000s, knew very little about ENACTA. Mm. And it's still a challenge, I think, for the movement today to appeal to a younger generation, uh, to recruit them, to, to, to absorb them into the particular uh, sort of mainstream, moderate thinking of ENACTA. And that's really difficult for a movement that was originally very youthful
0: itself. You mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned that Nahda opted for a consensus approach as opposed to the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood's more exclusivist approach um, and, and that's, it's quite interesting um, that what we've seen in, in the various concessions they've made and this you know the approach to the Constitution the approach to uh, the government and everything and yet at the same time there was fierce polarization over the course of 2011 through 2013 and uh, the whole thing almost fell apart. So how do, you, how do you explain this mismatch between what a strategy of consensus but a reality of political and social polarisation?
1: Yes, I mean the, the strategy of consensus in, in my view uh, was perhaps partly down to the uh, decisions made by Rashid Ghanoushi, the founder leader of the movement. But I think it was also perhaps even more so due to the way the movement has understood and reflected on its own experience um, in the late 1980s, the movement had a rare opportunity to take part in elections. It did surprisingly well, but that it led to into a confrontation with the Ben Ali regime. And I think when uh, members of Ennahda were in prison or in exile abroad in the 1990s, they reflected on that experience, and I think they took lessons from that, that they needed to forge political alliances in future, that they needed to be cautious rather than rushing into confrontation uh, in in order to capture the state. And I think they understood that the best protection against another round of repression was to be part, to be included in the political system. And so they've come to prioritise consensus building and inclusion in in the political process. You also have the, the, the simple fact that in October 2011, the first free elections after the uprising, they won 37% of the vote. In other words, um, they were the largest party, but they didn't have enough uh, votes to form a government on their own. They were forced to to, to opt for a, for a coalition. Um, at, at that stage, when they began to draft the constitution, at times they did propose... Uh, suggestions, uh, draft proposals for the Constitution that seemed rather extreme to others in Tunisian society, particularly the idea of introducing Sharia law as a source of legislation, but in the end, during debates with political parties and particularly with civil society, the Islamists were forced to restrain some of those Islamizing ambitions. So I think it's partly about the way the movement has adapted through its own experience, mm-hmm. and it's partly about its encounter with other political parties and with civil society, which has been particularly strong in Tunisia.
0: But, but Anetha's critics uh, accused it of all sorts of, uh, of horrible things. In other words, that they didn't seem to be reassured by, uh, by by these moves to uh, build coalitions and the like. And here I'm really thinking about 2013 and the run-up. Um.
1: In, indeed, yes. And, and in fact, it got so serious that Ennahda was effectively forced from power. They were forced mm-hmm. to resign in January uh, 2014. Yes, there was a heavily polarised uh, political situation. Uh, particularly the Tunisian media was incredibly critical of the Islamists. What we thought had been a rather homogenous country turned out to be actually rather rather more polarized uh, and in fact i think that reflected uh, or echoed in a way some of the the sharp criticisms that Ennahda faced in the late 1980s uh, what what has happened since then is that uh, in the second elections in october 2014 Ennahda lost it came second to Nida tunis which is the party that essentially represents the political and economic interests of the former regime elite and yet in other words, the great rivals of Inata and yet Inata has sought to do a deal with them, has, has, has taken a seat in this coalition government, a minor position, but again prioritising consensus, consensus building in order to try to avoid this polarisation that they faced in the past. And to a degree that's been successful, it's also caused tremendous structural difficulties within the movement, huge debates about whether it made the right decision to go into government with members of the former regime, Um, whether it's lost its course, whether it's no longer an Islamist movement, I think a number of members of the base of the movement
0: feel that it's lost the sort of Islamizing mission that it began with. Let's talk about about that a little bit more because one interpretation of what's happened is that it's not really a Nahda, it's Ghanoushi, that he decided for whatever reason that it was important and necessary to compromise uh, with Nidatunus that he basically made a decision which was extremely unpopular uh, with the Nahda base, and then because of his position was able to you know, convince the party to go along with it. But but that would suggest that this is not necessarily a kind of a, a party-wide or a movement-wide. Consensus, but something which is the outcome of, 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 of him and his life experience. And what is your take on that on the relationship between him as kind of the great man who you know, saved Tunisia versus this idea that it's more of these structural conditions, you know the historical experience of the party, the balance of power. Where, where do you stand on that that that, that great debate?
1: I mean, I think Ghanush's role has been very important and he had, it seems he built a particularly strong relationship with Bezikait Sebsi, the leader of Nidal-Tunis, and perhaps that relationship was very important in diffusing what was about to become a very serious crisis. But I sometimes feel that when we study Islamist movements, we perhaps pay too much attention to the individuals, the charismatic individuals that lead the movement and and what they say, and perhaps less attention to what others in the movement are saying too. So there are indeed uh, a group of people in the leadership that support uh, this approach that Ghanoush has taken, this pragmatic consensus building approach, but there are many others who who are really strongly opposed to it and... This has been rather an awkward contest for the movement to, to manage. And I see Renushi's position in this principally as being an arbiter, as being the one figure that can unite the movement. And I think there's a real sense that no one else in the movement quite has the credibility or the history or the charisma to play that really difficult balancing role of, of maintaining uh, a sense of, of, of cohesiveness within the movement. And I, I, think, I think a number of uh, ENAHTA members are very anxious about what the future holds for them. There's a, a plan to split the, the organisation into a political party on the one hand and a social movement on the other. The political party would be pragmatic and would uh, seek to win votes from a, a much broader socially conservative constituency. The social movement would work much more on preaching, mm. on social and cultural outreach. Uh, and yet this is still contested
0: it's not entirely clear what the future holds it, do you have any sense of how those attitudes break down within the organization in other words is it something where you know people in the in the coastline tend to be more like this and people in the in the down south tend to be like that or is it generational younger versus older do you have any sense at all about uh how that base that we should be paying attention to how, th- how they are divided
1: yeah this is this is very difficult to to assess correctly. I, I sometimes think it 's generational. Um, I sometimes think that uh, the the exiles are playing are playing a pragmatic role here too, but um, most of those i 've interviewed have been Tunisians who spent many years in jail in the 1990s and the mm. 2000s. And I think their experience of prison taught them uh, a considerable degree of pragmatism. It introduced them to other political actors uh, with whom they could hold you know long and deep discussions in, in the confines, uh, the repressive confines of their, of their prison cells. Um, the The more pragmatic figures tend to be those who are who are grouped in the capital in Tunis because that 's the nature of the sort of party structure and certainly the lower down the movement you go in terms of structural ranks, the more concern you find, the more anxiety you find about this pragmatic political direction i don 't think this is particularly new; I think the movement has wrestled with this since the early 1980s and I think what, what's, what I find particularly striking about this this movement. This is an Islamist movement that believes that Islam is a, has a, something comprehensive to offer in all aspects of life, political, social, cultural and economic. And yet what's happening now is that that, that comprehensive vision is beginning to come apart. And in fact, the more you look at the history of the movement, you, the more you see that the political wing and the preaching wing have always had rather a conflicted relationship with each other. And I think what's happening now is that that's finally coming to the fore.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Uh, Roy McCarthy, uh, thank you for joining us on the Pull Maps Podcast. Thank you for having me.